Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. I'm so glad you could tune in to Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is really the program where we take your calls and we answer your questions about the things you care the most about, questions about God, the historical Jesus. We talk about the Bible. We talk about worldviews and we talk about world religions. And because we talk about all of those things, it includes the past, which is history, and the future, which includes the subject of prophecy. But we also talk about the here and the now, and, of course, what's happening in the news. And so um, I know that yesterday it was a great big news day, even though we were talking a little bit about um, Ash Wednesday and and St. Valentine because it just so happened that yesterday it was both Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday, so we were able to um, literally talk about both of those things. But as you can imagine, um, there were a lot of things going on in the Capitol, including um, news that how, – how can I put this um, – well, I'll, I'll come back to this subject. Uh, so, But again, if you want to call me, it's 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. We were talking a little bit about um, the, the, the classified information about Russia's capability of launching um, certain weapons into orbit. And I'll have more on that story and that subject as it unfolds. But I think it's going to be an important story, and it and so we, we will be talking about that in the not-too-distant future. The other thing that was really um, an amazing story, and I, again, I want to give out the phone number. It's 303-873-1935. I'm not a big fan of the New York Times, but every once in a while... I will read the column by Nicholas Kristof, who's an opinion columnist, and he has written about religion and culture and a number of different other subjects. But today he mentioned a staggering statistic about America. And I want to maybe lead with this, and and Producer John, we can talk about some of the other things that we talked about off air, but... Um, again, the number is 303-873-1935. He brought to my attention that more than 48 million Americans have a substance use disorder, according to um, a number of different outlets. And I'm trying to remember where 
Christoph got this information, but it was posted at the New York Times uh, on an opinion piece by Janine Interlandi, where the headline read, 48 million Americans live with addiction. And so that's where he was getting the information from and the statistic from. But again, oh, okay, the statistic, the source apparently comes from the federal government and the National Institute of Health. So the toll is immense. Every 13 seconds, someone is rushed into an emergency room for abusing drugs. More than 100,000 Americans die from overdoses each year. Let that sink in. 100,000 Americans die from overdoses each year. Estimates of the financial burden are in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Some have said that the consequences lead to a trillion dollars each year. And Nicholas Kristof points out, so when you're calculating the, the physical and economic costs, that doesn't tell us anything about the psychological or dare I say, the mental, the social, and the spiritual consequences. And so, again, everybody, everybody who's listening to the sound of my voice probably knows someone or is close to someone who doesn't just simply struggle with drugs and alcohol, but... That struggle is what defines their life. And so um, lots going on. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. And um, everybody's probably aware of what's going on in the news as far as the House of Representatives voted to impeach a sitting cabinet member, the Homeland Security uh, member, for the first time in 150 years. And that is a big deal. And, of course, everybody and their mother has been talking about the uh, shooting that took place during the Chiefs Super Bowl parade and what seems to be coming out as that story unfolded, because I was surprised when I heard about one, two, and then three gunmen. But again, it had nothing to do with terrorism. It had nothing to do with uh, disrupting the parade. It wasn't a politically motivated or ideologically motivated shooting in the sense that, um, you know, like the gunmen at the church in Houston had written on her rifle barrel, um, free Palestine. Apparently an argument broke out during the parade. Guns were drawn and people started firing, which has led to, again, the ever, the, the conversation that always seems to take place when you have what looks like a mass shooting event. But 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on 
the program. There was another headline that caught my eye. It said, this is from the Salon, S-A-L-O-N, Hobby Lobby funded Jesus Super Bowl ads can't hide the hate that fuels the Christian right. Now, just the ad is so interesting because the article blasted the He Gets Us campaign as a bait-and-switch campaign trying to lure the unchurched people with a phony message of love and compassion only to get them to join the MAGA movement. In other words, that it's politically motivated, that it's not motivated with a deep and sincere desire for lost people to get saved. So, but that's a that's an interesting um, observation because people are asking the question, well, what would motivate the He Gets Us campaign? And so if you go to the He Gets Us website, they have their own explanation that Jesus Christ uh wants to save people. Phil Boone, who is the director of the generosity for He Gets Us campaign, talked about the research that went behind the campaign and the Super Bowl commercials and what they were trying to accomplish, the hopes that they were trying to accomplish. I have my own thoughts and ideas about that, and I talked about it at length um, over the last couple of days. But Again, if you want to join me, 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Welcome back. Happy, happy to take your call at 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. And um, I wanted to, um, again, hopefully, prayerfully, happy to take your calls about God, the historical Jesus. And at the Denison Forum today, um, Jim Denison talks about that article that was mentioned in Salon and the headline, the Hobby Lobby funded Jesus Super Bowl ads can't hide the hate that fuels the Christian right. In other words, where the, the perception was, that quote-unquote Christians are trying to trick unbelievers into becoming Christians so that they'll adopt conservative values and join the MAGA movement. Now, that's fairly ridiculous. And the writer says that the campaign is partly funded by the Green family, which is true. It is, in fact, partly funded by the Green family, and claims, quote, their mission, their life mission, this is the critic, their life mission besides getting rich by selling cheap, and I can't say with this, is to push their brand of far-right Christianity on the country. Now, again, that criticism and that accusation is interesting to me in light of the headline at the Los Angeles Times with 48 million people 
with a drug or alcohol addiction problem. Now, we can get into the definitions of what constitutes drug and alcohol addiction. We can get into the definitions of what constitutes despair. We could get into the definitions of why more people today want to kill themselves than ever before. But imagine if you suggest something as crazy as that people are empty and broken and they're wondering if life has any meaning whatsoever and whether or not their sin is such that it can be forgiven. They wonder whether or not they can be reconciled to God. And again, I have not met... um, the Green family, but I was at an event in Washington, D.C., and I did get to go to the Museum of the Bible. And it's been my experience that it wasn't this family's desire to whip up people into a political frenzy so that um, America will return to conservative values. So we've got several different layers of accusation here, and that is, well, do Christians and their worldview, do they enhance culture or cripple culture? And Jim Dennison at the Dennison Forum and also at ChristianHeadlines.com where he writes religiously, he said a few years ago, and this is uh, Jim Dennison speaking, he says, quote, a few years ago I was privileged to spend some time with the Green family before an event in Washington, D.C., which we both spoke. They were remarkably gracious, humble, and caring. Their extreme generosity has touched millions of lives around the world with compassion and grace. He says, the night before we met, one of our team members happened to be in our hotel lobby when David Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby, checked in. The receptionist noticed his name tag and said, do you work for Hobby Lobby? And he said, yes. And then he goes on, does seeing such animosity against a family that holds historic Orthodox Christian beliefs feel discouraging to you? In the face of such rising threats to our faith and our future, do you sometimes feel overwhelmed and wonder if you can make a difference that matters? Now, I think that that's interesting when you think about this great big polarization. But imagine for the Christian, they see the polarization isn't simply ideological, political, or even cultural. That it's an issue of darkness and light. It's an issue of death and life. And so that when Paul talks about Jesus delivers us from darkness into light, from death into life, there is words, metaphors that are used to describe coming out of a world where emptiness, darkness, loneliness, and hopelessness is an everyday thing for many, many people in America. And so um, 
Jim Dennison writes, God called me into this ministry to speak truth to culture. But while I can write words that will be read by a large audience, for which I'm daily humbled and grateful, you can actually live biblical truth in ways that make you the salt and light. You can be a part of our world, uh, the salt and light, which our world desperately needs, he's saying. So in fact, he says, God has entrusted to you capacities and influence that he hasn't given to anyone else. And so imagine what Jim Dennison is pointing out is that he has put you in exactly the place that he has put you so that you can act as a preservative, so that you can act as salt. Salt in that sense becomes a little bit abrasive, but also light, which again becomes very difficult in a dark world. And he says, what are some practical ways to be a cultural missionary? He says, number one, expect opposition from those who oppose our Lord. Well, that seems reasonable. He says, instead of uh, of anticipating, well, everybody's going to love me and, and everybody's going to be happy with me, he says, no, you, you should actually expect opposition from those who oppose the Lord. Number two, treat others as Christ treats us. And number three, he talks about sharing the grace that we have received. And then he sort of expands on the subject of that expectation. You should expect opposition from Satan. He says, John eight forty four. Satan is the father of lies. He quotes Paul, the apostle, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. And Jesus was blunt in John fifteen eighteen when he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Pause and let that sink in. Well, if you were a better example, then people would love you. Jesus was the perfect example, and they hated him. Well, if I just said what was right, people would love me. Jesus always said what was right, and they hated him. So imagine you live a perfect life. You say perfect things, and you even do perfect things. The religious leaders of Jesus' day falsely accused him, arrested him, tortured him, killed him. Now, that's not the whole story, though, because Jesus knew that that would happen because he's on a mission. He is going to die for sin. He isn't... He doesn't die as a sad cultural mistake because he was misunderstood by the people around him. I'm going to suggest to you that the that the New Testament writer was correct when he said, if they had known that this was the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have killed him. So, as you can imagine... When we suffer for our Savior, 
when we choose the example of our spiritual ancestors, when we too are ridiculed, misunderstood, and beaten, that it makes perfect sense that we should rejoice counting ourselves worthy to suffer suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. It's one thing to suffer because you're an idiot or a jerk or you're difficult to get along with. But it's another thing for when you just simply say what is true. This is Gino Joyce. Hey, if you want to join me, love to hear from you. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci, 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the air, 303-873-1935. And um, I know, Producer John, we were talking a little bit about well, yesterday was Ash Wednesday, which for many traditions like Roman Catholic traditions, some Protestant traditions, they begin a regimen of um, fasting. And I know that you wanted to ask me a little bit about fasting. Yes, I did, actually. Uh, Gino, I was reading the Sermon on the Mount again, and it cut... And for some reason, I paused on fasting. It talked about not looking all sullen and everything like that. Put your, put oil on your head and go about your day. And I wanted your uh, thoughts and biblical perspectives on the misrepresentation versus the biblical perspective of fasting. Okay, let's start with that passage in Matthew chapter 6. It's actually found between verses 16 and 18, and it's a really fairly long passage. But I'm going to read it real quick. Jesus said, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, think product, and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So pause, and and I think what he's basically talking about is the fact that if you are going to fast, or whenever you fast, it's important that your heart is in the right place. In other words, that your motive is appropriate. And so I think what he's talking about is that there's a right kind of fast, and there's a wrong kind of fast. And so the, the wrong kind of fast is the wrong motive. Um, Isaiah 58 talks about this in verses 3 and 4. It says, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. In other words, he's saying you're fasting, but here you are beating each other up. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on a high. Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen 
to loose the chains of injustice, to share your food with the hungry, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. So he's getting straight to the heart of the of the purpose of fasting, that the people of Israel had been fasting in order to receive blessings from the Lord, but their motivation was ungodly, which led to cruel conduct. And then God's people had forgotten that the point of fasting wasn't to manipulate God or to coerce God into giving them stuff that they wanted. Prayer doesn't work that way. And so... So to your point, yeah, you you need to evaluate your motives. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what is your motive? What are your expectations? And are there any good reasons or biblical reasons for fasting? And I think maybe some of the best reasons might include things like, well, I want to know God's will about a big decision or even about a general guidance. So the two times in my life where I set aside a whole week to fast. One was, where am I going to go to college? Because I knew that that would affect my life forever. The second was, who am I going to marry? And so I wanted to know God's will. And and Judges chapter 20, verse 26, Acts chapter 9, verse 9, talk about that. Well, are there other good reasons to fast? Well, to strengthen your faith and character. In other words, you, fasting in the Bible usually means going without food. But it doesn't mean just simply going without food. It means instead of eating, now you're going to pray or you're going to study or you're going to meditate and reflect on the Scripture. And so, again, the whole point of a fast is not to to punish your body in order to get a favor with God, but rather, again, perhaps to know God's will, to strengthen your faith, to ask God to help accomplishing a, a difficult task or to seek deliverance from illness or harm or to ask God from for protection in a, in a dangerous situation. So part of what we have to just come to grips with is the Bible actually doesn't command Christians to fast. It doesn't demand it. But at the same time, the Bible does suggest that there's something good and profitable and beneficial in setting aside certain activities. In in the Bible, it's typically food in order to focus your spiritual attention on the Lord. So, okay, 303-873-1935. Go ahead. Do you think that coming out of the season that we had of Holy Spirit hyper-spiritualism, so to speak, that uh, unrealistic expectations of fasting, especially after trying to seek revelation or anything like that, um, has really put a a hindrance on the uh, basics of fasting? I think so. And, And let me tell you why. Again... For the person who's fasting in order to get a deeper revelation, they're suggesting something. They're suggesting that Jesus isn't enough and that the revelation that's already been given is insufficient. And I got to tell you something. Here's the challenge. 
the moment that you know anything in your Bible, you're accountable for it. Most people aren't willing to live their lives and be accountable for what they know in the Scripture. You know, there was a very famous unbeliever. His name was Mark Twain. And he was asked the question about the Bible. And he said, it wasn't the parts that I don't understand that concern me. It's the parts that I do understand. In other words, he was at least as an honest unbeliever willing to come to grips with, hey, the Bible is asking me to do certain things that I'm unprepared to do. And so the book of Acts records believers fasting before they made an important decision in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. They were fasting and praying, were often linked together. But remember, it wasn't in order to get a deeper revelation, because guess what? The deepest of the deepest revelation had already been revealed. Sinners can have a Savior, that you are complete in Christ, not incomplete. And so too often the focus of fasting, again, is on the lack of food instead of placing your eyes on the Lord. So fasting is a way to demonstrate to God and to ourselves that we're serious about our fellowship with him. And so what I'm going to suggest is that part of the point of fasting is to help us obtain a new perspective and renewed reliance and a deeper trust. It isn't for, quote-unquote, a fresh vision, unless, of course, that fresh vision goes to the heart of the decision. Like I talked about earlier, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to study something. I'm going to marry someone. And so, again, I think that fasting should be set to a limited time. And and so it should have a beginning and a middle and an end. And remember, the purpose isn't to punish the flesh in order to get favor with God. It's to deny the flesh in order to feed the spirit. So I think that's part of the answer. Hey, thank you for that question. 303-873-1935. Hey, if you'd like to join me on the program, easy to do. You pick up the phone, you dial the number 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci, and I, I guess I'll, I'll talk about this Russian uh, story when we come back at the, at the top of the hour. But, again, if you want to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935. For the last couple of days, I have been sort of mentioning and, and talking a little bit about both the people applauding and the people criticizing the He Gets Us campaign. And um, obviously, according to people who keep track of how many people are watching, there was allegedly some 123-plus million viewers at the Super Bowl, which made it the most watched American television broadcast in a generation. And... um, so the He Gets Us campaign 
aired, and there were two ads. One ad was called the Who Is My Neighbor ad, and it came with the words, the one you don't notice, value or welcome, splashed in large text. And the other ad was a foot washing, which showed people washing the feet of others. And it included the message, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. He gets us, all of us, Jesus. And then it gives, he gets us.com, love, journey, neighbor. And so the ads, like Jesus himself, have attracted criticism because they're asking and answering the question, well, what exactly are you doing? What exactly are you saying? And what can you say? So when we think about all of this, think about this for just a moment. A 30-second commercial ad at the Super Bowl cost $7 million. He gets us added up to 75 seconds. Now, all of this to say, what exactly is going on? Well, for the people who are putting it on, they're hoping that you'll go to the website, that you will uh, tune in on a U version of the Bible and find out more about Jesus. So in my view, part, part of the challenge is the critics see what they want, the, the, the supporters see what they want, but in my view, the premise is that the reputation of Jesus has been severely damaged by his evangelical followers. And so the he gets us is basically saying, hey, you know what? You, you've got it all wrong. Um, now, now, again, in, in my view, the vast majority of Jesus followers have not damaged the reputation of Jesus. Some people are wonderful examples of Jesus. I'm willing to admit that there are people who aren't good examples. The Lord Jesus gets that we're sinners. So when we ask and we answer the question, he gets us. Well, in what way does he get us? Does he get us that we're flawed, that we're human, that we're weak, that we're broken? And you know what? That is who we are, and that's what we are, and that's the way we're going to remain. Or does he get that we're sinners in need of a Savior, that we have to repent of sin, and that we have to trust him as saviors? So, so he gets us, well... But does that mean we have to unconditionally regard sinners with no real clear gospel message? So the critic says, where's the gospel in all of this? So the gospel certainly isn't that he gets us or that he loves us, although he does get us and that he does love us. But the real gospel is that he's willing to save us. In order for you to understand the gospel, you have to understand the bad news. You have to understand the bad news that we're sinners. So can you imagine spending about $10 million on the Super Bowl ad in the hope that someone will see the commercial and say, wow, what people have told me about Jesus is wrong. Now I know that Jesus gets me. What does he get me? Well, he knows that I'm a sinner. He's still willing to wash my feet, ignore my tattoos, meet me where I am, which happens to be at an abortion clinic, 
And then I, I, I've gotten a wrong message at church, and now I want to find out about Jesus. Now, again, I want to make it clear. Is it true that Jesus gets us? Yeah. Is it true that we're sinners, according to the Bible, and Jesus? Yes. Does he love us? Yes. But again, I wasn't left by any of the commercials with the impression that Jesus wants us to repent of our sin and trust him as Savior. So, if you go to their website, and I'm reading from their website, it says, quote, and this is um, at the He Gets Us website.com, He Gets Us.com. And I'm reading it word for word. Quote, our campaign comprises humble perspectives from a diverse group of Jesus fans and followers with a variety of faith journeys and lived experiences bound by a common desire to rediscover and share the compelling story of Jesus' life in a new way. We will make mistakes like everyone with a public message or who, who sets out to share an idea. We won't always get it right. Expect us to be human. The campaign exists. And uh, here's what they're, they're giving it away. The campaign exists to remind us of the example that Jesus set while inviting all to explore his teachings so that we can follow his example of confounding unconditional love because he gets us, all of us. Now, what's, what's wrong about that is, again, I'm wondering if the compelling story of Jesus' life in a new way, you mean in a way other than what the Bible says? I mean, what exactly are you asking us? And by the way, if, if, if according to them, if the campaign exists to remind us of the example of Jesus, well, is Jesus a great example? The answer is yes, he is a great example. But does his example save us, cleanse us, wash us? Is it his example that takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of life? Is it his example that means that dead people can be alive, that guilty people can be, can be found not guilty? And so my position is, well, no, so far. So, again, I'm wondering... Is the ad campaign damage control for a group of people who thinks that Christianity has been misrepresented? If you look at their website, and again, I'm reading it verb word for word. What is your stance on the LGBTQ plus community? Quote, these are probably the most common questions we receive, and we understand why. Many of those who represent Jesus have made people in the LGBTQ plus community feel judged and excluded, and others in the Jesus community have simply ignored their stories and lived experiences. So let us be clear in our opinion. Jesus loves gay people, and Jesus loves trans people. Now, again, I don't dispute that Jesus loves gay people or trans people. But what I'm wondering is, at what point are they asked 
to repent of their sin and to trust the Savior. That's the challenge. 303-873-1935. When I come back, I'll have more. (laughs) This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for joining me. 